we sang a song, It Is Well With My Soul. You probably know the original hymn. Remember that song, It Is Well With My Soul? It was written by somebody named Horatio Spafford way back in 1871. Horatio Spafford, um, in his life, went through a, a number of life storms, tragic storms, hard storms. In 1871, they lost their four-year-old son. I can't imagine anything more tragic as a storm than something like that. October of that very same year, it was the Great Chicago Fire, and Spafford was very wealthy and had lots of real estate on the, on the shoreline of Chicago, and it all burned. He lost everything, his finances. Shortly after that, he decides um, that we should probably take a break from all this storms of life, this drama, and he sends his family to the United Kingdom, England. They were going to, they actually, his wife and his daughter left on a ship before he, he said, I'll follow you in a couple of days. They were going to go uh, work with an evangelist, D.L. Moody, out of Chicago. And on that ship, tragically, on October, no, November 22nd of that year, their ship was struck by another ship. And the ship sunk in 12 minutes. A day or two later, when his wife finally made it to a point where she could telegraph back, she said, I was saved alone. He loses his daughter. He gets on his ship to travel where, like he planned to go to England again. And it was on that ship where he asked the captain of the ship, will you please tell me where it happened, where the ship went down? Can you imagine the turmoil as a father looking out in, in, in the, these waves and saying, God, I know you're a good God. I know you're a kind God, but this was hard. God, you need to be the God of peace. You need to be a God of comfort. And he wrote that hymn. And can I just tell you one of the lines that he wrote while standing on the deck of that ship looking at the very place where he lost his daughter? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou has taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Because of an encounter with the Jesus, the Prince of Peace, within the storms of his life, even though he felt the hurt, he found there was a comforter, a peace-giving God in Christ. Have you ever been in a personal storm of your own? A hard thing? Difficult thing? Have you ever been in a storm that just toppled your world um, where you felt helpless and alone and something that you couldn't solve? Maybe you're in a storm today, could be. Financial storm. Maybe your marriage is in a storm today. Maybe you have wayward children, which is like a storm to you. It's hard. It's a, or you have an addiction issue that you're dealing with, and it's a storm. It's, it's pounding upon your life, and you can't seem to escape it. Maybe you lost a loved one. And maybe the echoes of some past storm, still you can still feel them in your life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe today you're still hearing the thunderclap of fear, or the, 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 the waves, the crashing waves of worry. Maybe it's the breakers of bitterness or the pouring down of doubt or discouragement. It still touches your life. Have you met the Jesus that is ever present in times of trouble? The one who they call the Prince of Peace that can somehow bring calm in the midst of your storm? 
If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to uh, Mark 6, 45 through 52. This particular story takes place just after Jesus feeds the 5,000. Prior to that, the disciples got their marching orders. It was at dusk, and Jesus sends his disciples into the Sea of Galilee while, uh, near Capernaum while he stayed back and he prayed on the grassy hillside of the Golan Heights. Let's read the story, Mark 6, 45 through 52. It said, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go down of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. It was about the fourth watch of the night, and he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them when they saw him walking on the lake. They thought he was a ghost, they cried out. Because they all saw him, they were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the winds died down. They were completely amazed because they have understood nothing about the loaves and fishes because their hearts were hard. Today I want to discover a very valuable principle in this text if we ever go or have ever gone or are currently in a life storm. And really to answer the question is, what is Jesus doing? What, where is he during my storm? Where is he? The first principle, I think, is in the very first verse that we read. It said, Jesus, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat. Made. He didn't take a vote. He didn't say, guys, what do you think? You want to go to their side? It wasn't, wasn't optional. It means compelled, constrained. That's what that word means. Probably if he would have asked, do you guys want to go into a storm? What would you say? No, thank you. He likely made those disciples get into the boat because they had a divine appointment in a storm. It was a sovereignly God-permitted storm for their life. Um, here's the principle. Listen to this. Sometimes God leads us into the tempest to teach that which could not be caught, taught in comfort. Did you get that? Sometimes God puts you into a storm, a tempest, to teach you something that could never be learned through the easy things of life. There was likely something for the disciples to learn in that storm. Look at the description of the storm. It was no ordinary storm. Remember, these are, these are fishermen. Four of them were professional fishermen. They were men of the sea. They've had storms before. Mark 6, 48 says, The disciples were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. The Matthew account of the same story says they were a long way from land, beaten by the waves, and the wind was against them. The John account said the sea was getting rougher and rougher and higher and higher because the great and violent wind was blowing. Have you ever been in that kind of storm? You know what I mean? That, that kind of storm. We're a long way from land. A long way from land. If you're, if you're in trouble and there's a storm, a long way from land said swimming is not an option. It's almost impossible. I wish I was closer to the shore. I could, we could jump out and maybe we could paddle it, get it, get it in. The beaten by the waves. I mean, unrelenting pain of, of a situation. The wind is against you. This means that the best of your efforts, you try to move forward and it just pushes you backwards. You ever been in one of those kind of storms? Your life is buffeted? They say that all of us are, at some point in our life, we either have been in a storm or are going to go through a storm or currently in a storm. At some point, life brings you storms. 
You know, the Bible doesn't, the Bible tells us very clearly, we're not going to live a life free of storms. Do you, you know what Jesus said? In John 16, 33, he said, in this world, you will have what? Tribulations, storms. Write it down, boys. Write it down. Write it down. So you don't, don't panic when it happens. In this world, it's a fallen world. You used to live in, 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 in Eden where it was perfect. It was a little terrarium. I took care of you because of the fall of sin. Hey, there is danger and death and discouragement and hurt and pain, which was not in, in the original plan. But when you went, decided to go your way, we live in a fallen world. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. Job's friend Eliphaz in the book of Job says that, 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 that man is destined for trouble just as sure as sparks fly upward. That's, it's going to happen. Jesus himself, because he took on the form of a man in order to understand what it really feels like, not just as God the creator, but, but as the Bible said, he emptied himself. He made himself of, uh, of no reputation. He came down and behaved and lived in the human limitation. You know what they said about Jesus? He learned obedience through the things he, what? Suffered. He went, through, he went through storms, so it wasn't like, hey, I don't know what you guys are going through. Good luck for you, but I never had to do it. He understands. He's a faithful high priest. When you go through your storm, he said, I understand. He's been tested in every way that we are, the Bible says, without sin. So your storm, he said, I felt that pain, and I can relate to this pain. I'm not a God who's indifferent to that. I can feel it. Dr. Tony Evans tells a story. Him and his wife were on a cruise one time. Uh, in the Alaska, it was Alaska cruise. One day, the captain came on the intercom and said uh, that we're heading into a storm right now, ladies and gentlemen, just ahead in the Alaskan Passage. And they came to the storm, and the storm tossed the ship all about, and her her luggage was tipping over, and she was feeling sick, and she she gets mad. Mrs. Uh, Evans calls the captain and said, "Captain, why in the world, if you knew there was a storm ahead, why did you continue to go up the Alaskan Passage?" She said, "Ma'am, this ship is built for storms like this, and you and I." Because of God's design, because of his enablement, you're, bi- you're built for storms like that. Jesus never promised his followers that be a life free of storms. Here's what he did promise. I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Even if you're in the valley of shadow of death, you're with me. Thou art with me. Thou art with me. When you go through the hardest of your life, if, here, here's, here's the principle. If you go through it alone, if God is at a distance from you, life is gonna, your problem and your storm is going to be hard. Would you agree? You ever go through a storm where God is distant and, and, and your friends are, are not going to talk to you about God? What, what can they say to you? Oh, sorry, right? You get Christian friends that said, I'm going to pray for you that God will strengthen you. Because Jesus, the Bible says he's the ever-present help in time of trouble. Ever-present help in time of trouble. If you're going through, the Bible says anybody's in trouble, you know what you should, the Bible says you should do? Let him pray. If you're going through a storm, pray. Seek the Lord. God never wastes storms. He wants to use them. They're the PhD classes of learning. Uh, Nahum has a verse in Nahum 1, verse 3. It says, the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. He has his way. He can use it. He can use it to, for, for great purpose, deep purposes. Jerry Bridges says this, one thing for sure, uh, one thing we may be sure of, however, for the believer, all pain has meaning. All adversity is profitable. There's no question that adversity is difficult. It usually takes us by surprise and seems to strike us where we're most vulnerable. To us, it often appears completely senseless and irrational, but to God, it is neither senseless or irrational. He has purpose in every pain 
that he brings or allows in our life, we can be sure that in some way he intends it for our profit and for our glory. You know why? God knows this. We learn more from our, la- our tears than we'll ever learn from our laughter. Do you understand that? We learn more from our tears than we ever learn from our laughter. It's during those moments where everything goes silent, where you're alone with yourself, where you get serious about life. Storms don't mean that you're necessarily out of the will of God. Do you know that? It doesn't mean you're out of the will of God. It doesn't mean that God is punishing you because you go through a storm. They're part of a lot of a fallen world. Job, if you remember, was a righteous man, right? There was nobody like Job. Here's a righteous man. Did he go through a storm? Tremendous storm. His business is wiped out. He loses his daughters and sons. But how we respond to the storm and how Job responded determines if we're going to be bitter or better. Remember Job's wife, when he goes through a storm and all this happens, here's what his wife says. Curse God and die. God permitted this, curse him and die. You know what Job did? This is what Job did. Job, in Job 13, 15, even if God slays me, I will put my hope in him. That is relentless faith that says, God, I don't know why, I don't, know, I don't have to understand it, but God, somehow you're going to do something great. Hillary's here when she was a little girl, or a teenage girl, we went out to Montana as a family. We're gonna, we took a train and went out with the church, and it was a great night, and that first evening we're at a Chinese restaurant. The kids said, Dad, Dad, can we all, all 10 of the kids from other families in my family, uh, said, can we go uh, back to the hotel? They went back to the hotel, but somehow they crossed the four-lane highway in Big Sky, Montana. And that night, I had a little a young man run into the restaurant while I'm still waiting with my wife and said, Mr. Twite, Mr. Twite, your daughter's been hit by a, truck, by a car, by a van. 50 miles an hour, through her 30, 40 feet. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations that everything goes silent, right? It's like, it's like, you're in, like this is like not even real. It's like I'm in a dream. Have you ever been that place? It's like this is not real. And I remember running, and it's like I feel like I'm in slow motion. I'm watching. I can see the glazy, icy road and kind of wet, and I see sirens and stuff in the middle of a highway, and I see a body, and I'm running. You know what I said? Whatever I have to learn, God, help me to learn it quickly. I also said, God, you owe me nothing, but please show me your kindness. Please show me your kindness. You owe me nothing. I come up and she's unconscious and there are ambulance and EMT people all around. I look down. One eye opens. She said, Daddy, Daddy, am I going to die? What do you say? You pray. Get in an ambulance, go to kill a spell. They said, you're, you, this is too, too bad. I mean, she, 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 we have to take her to the major medical institution. So they, they took her to the major medical institution. We go there, and by the grace of God, next, they said, she probably has brain damage. We pray. My wife, she prays. The whole night, she has retrograde, integrate amnesia. That means you can't remember you, you know, who the president is. You don't remember your cat's name. This is not good. 
They did a brain scan. They said, for some reason, I can't believe it. She, where she was hit and how she was hit, there's no, I see no bleeding in the brain. Thank you, Lord. I pray till 2 or 3 in the morning. My wife, I don't think, ever fell asleep. At her bedside. By morning, by the grace of God, looked like Rocky Balboa. She could tell you who the president was. She could tell you the cat's name. She could tell you the date. We walked out that day. But I learned something in a storm. That my God is gracious. And I said, God... When I stood over her that day, I said, if, if she dies, I, I wish I could have told her I loved her one more time. Right? Man, that crystallizes some stuff because now you got a chance. Now you got time. Um, so Job went through his storm too. And he worships God. In the deepest level, in fact, the deepest level of worship, I think, is when you praise God when things go terribly wrong. And God, I'm going to choose, even though my emotions are screaming against me, because sometimes your emotions speak louder than your theology. Right? Right? And he said, God, at the end of his whole story, he said, my ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. I repent. You see, I, feel, I did all the fill-in-the-blank Bible studies. I went to church, and I, and I understood and remembered all those verses. But those verses, here's the, here's the deal. In Christianity, if you just memorize verses, if you just have theological truth, they are theological theories until they're tested in the crucible of life. They're theories. There's something powerful when, the, when he said, my eyes have seen you. This is experiential knowledge. This is experiential when you see it with your own eyes, it's, not, it's no longer theoretical anymore. I've seen God be faithful in my hardest, most difficult, most challenging time. He's faithful. And even if he slays me, I'm going to praise and I'm going to worship him. Peter, in his second book, Second Peter, he's going to die. He's the pastor of this church. And one of the, when I studied that chapter, one of the verses in Peter, he uses the word knowledge two ways. But the biggest thing he wanted to get across to his congregation, he says, I want you to have epigenosis. See, the word for knowledge in Greek is gnosis, information. Read the book, take the test, get the right answer. Epigenosis is experiential knowledge. I want you to know him. Can you imagine if love was just something that you read a book? I'll give you Shakespeare's sonnets on love, and you can memorize it, and you can repeat it, and you can have convictions about it, but you never experience love. When you see it with your, the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your heart, it's not debatable anymore, right? Because it's like, it is. It is. I, I saw it with my own eyes. If it's just a theoretical theorem, and you never tested it in the crucible of life, you've never proven it, consider the testing of your faith more, more important than gold, because when you test it, it's found to be true. That's powerful. That, 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 that's changing. Verdell Davis says, God is doing a greater work in us, and, and, 
Uh, and, and that can only come when we learn to trust him no matter how dark the days and how sleepless the nights. It's only when we've been through the storms and darkness with him is what we know in our heads. Listen, to this. Only, do, only when we go through the storms, that we, what we know in our heads, our theological ideas, slides down into our hearts and, becomes, and, and our hearts no longer demand answers. The why becomes unimportant when we believe that God can and will redeem the pain of, for our good. And you, you put the, the love of God next to the, the, the omnipotence of God and, and the sovereignty of God, our hearts can rest. Our hearts can rest if you know God, my God is good. I don't know why, God, but God, you're going, to do, you're going to make all things beautiful in your time. You bind up the brokenhearted. You will bind my broken heart up. You'll do what you need to do. See, tests are like assaying uh, gold. If you, have a, if you have gold, do you know how you purify gold, right? It's through what? Fire. Difficulty. Pain. My dad used to have a, a printing shop and he used to melt lead because they had a linotype where you make these little lead slugs and he'd melt this lead. And, and the way you purify gold is the very same way. You put it in a pot and you heat it up. When you heat it up, you know what happens? All the dross, all the impurities come to the top. And a goldsmith knows when the, when the gold is pure. Do you know how he knows when his gold is pure? He takes a little ladle and scoops off that black junk that comes with all the impurities, all the things that are, are not pure. And he scoops it off. He can tell it's pure when you can see your reflection. You see, when we go through difficulties, all the realities of what we really are come to the surface. What we're really trusting on comes to the surface. We know that um, James, First uh, Peter 1, 7, these trials, these storms show that your faith is genuine. That's what it says. It's being tested as fire tests pure and purifies gold. Through your, fa- your faith is more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring much praise and glory and honor in the day when Jesus Christ revealed. The Message Bible of James uh, 1, 2 to 4 says, Consider it a, a sheer gift, friends, when tests, challenges, or storms come in at you from all sides because you know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open to show its true colors. It forces it up. You'll find out what you're really leaning on. No words can um, express how much the world owes to storms. It was most of the Psalms were born in the hard sandstorms of the wilderness. The epistles, uh, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, they were written in the stormy, the lonely, stormy prisons. That's where they were written in stormy prisons. Many of the greatest writers have learned life storms when they wrote about it. It was uh, in a Bedford jail that, uh, that John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Today, take comfort, afflicted Christians. When God is about to make preeminent use of a person, he often prepares them with a storm. So why would God allow storms in our life? Why would he allow that to happen? George Mueller says, trials, difficulties, and sometimes defeat are the very food of faith. True faith is revealed through adversity. Faith, you know, your faith is a muscle. Your faith is a muscle. Muscles grow by tearing. You, no pain, no gain. Dolly Parton, the great theologian, <laughs> said this. She said, storms make trees take deep roots. That's probably true. God sometimes can use storms to capture our attention. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's the megaphone to arouse a deaf world. 
God could use storms to redirect us. It was, remember, it was, uh, Jonah was running away from God. He was the prophet. He was supposed to go to Nineveh. Instead, he got on a ship heading in the opposite direction. And God says, I love you too much to keep you going that way. So remember, he can't violate our free will, but he can send storms to kind of encourage our free will. So he sends a storm that, that all of a sudden the ship's you know, g- going to sink. And everybody on the, on, the, on the bridge of the ship is talking to Jonah. And Jonah's telling everybody, you know why this storm is coming? It's because of me. I'm, just dis- I'm the disobedient one. You wouldn't have this storm. So they, take off an I- they have an idea. Let's throw them overboard, right? So he gets thrown overboard, which you think would be a ter- terrible deal. He's thinking, well, I probably deserve to die because I'm running from God. But the graciousness of God is he has a big fish, whale, whatever, that captures him. And it was in that whale. You know what happens? He says, I turn. He said, I turn my eyes again. I shall look to your holy temple. Jonah, chapter, uh, Jonah 2. I will turn to what I have vowed I will pay for salvation belongs to the Lord. Storms develop us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, these little storms, trials, are really so transparent. They're winning for us a permanent, glorious, solid reward out of proportion to all of our pain. Erwin Luster says, God often puts us in situations that are too much for us, so we learn that no situation is too big for him. Next verse. What is Jesus doing? So he sends him in a storm. He made them. What's Jesus doing during our storm? After Mark 6, 46, after leaving them, he went out to a mountainside to what? He prays for you. He prays for you. You know that Jesus is praying for you? The Bible says he always lives to intercede for you. He's interceding for you. When you go through your storm, what do you think he's praying about for you? I got a clue. If you're in Luke, in Luke uh, uh, it talks about Simon Peter. It says, Simon Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But I'm praying for you that your faith doesn't fail. You know what he didn't pray? I'm praying that Satan doesn't let you go through a hard thing. Nope. You're going to go through a storm. But I'm praying for you that your faith doesn't fail. So somehow faith, that muscle that says, God, I'm going to depend upon you, even though my personal human frailty is screaming, God, I'm going to choose to trust you. Faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not yet seen. Do you know your faith is only operational until you get what you want? Right? Think about it. What, if I said, I really wish, I pray, I'm praying I get a new car. You get a new car, do you have to have faith in getting a new car? I already got one. Faith, is, faith, the muscle of faith, which is dear to God, operates most brilliantly, not when things are coming your way, when, you don't, when you're trusting in God that he will make all things right and all things beautiful in his time. That's when your faith is being exercised. That's when God says it's beautiful. That's what he prays for. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So he's praying for us. Robert Murray McShane, who is a great writer on prayer, wrote this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is praying for me. Jesus includes us in his high priestly prayer. You sitting here today, he prays for you. He said, I pray for those who are yet to believe in my word. I'm praying for you. He prays for you right now. He's interceding for you. What's next? Verse 48. And he, he says, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. The, the, the Lord is watching us. He's not only praying, he's watching us. He's watching us. The Hebrew, one of the Hebrew names for God was El Roy, which means the God who sees. The God who sees. 
Job's, uh, John's account of this story says they were three to four miles out in the dark, and he sees you. Do you know he never takes his eye off of you? Because he loves you that much? He's waiting for you to respond to him. He's waiting for you to seek him. He's waiting for you. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me, if you seek me, you'll find me. In the midst of your storm, you'll find me if you seek me. I can't make you. I can't violate your free will. But I can, you know, the storm might awaken you. You might pray. Job calls God the watcher of men. The psalmist said, you watch my rising up and my lying down. You were intimately acquainted with all my ways. Before words on my lip, you know it completely. He knows the number of hairs on your head. So when you brush your hair today, he up, updated his, his number. Elroy, the God who sees, sees your past misery, your present pain, your uncertain future. He's, he is so watchful that he knows even when the smallest pharaoh, sparrow perishes. He's the God who sees and he does care for you. If you're, in this, if you're listening today, he cares for you today. Next, John six forty eight. It was the fourth watch of the night and he went out to them walking on the lake. Fourth watch of the night. Fourth watch of the night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Jesus watched his disciples struggle for nine hours. Now, why, Jesus, why would you do that? Nine hours? You would, you, would you think Jesus would just say, well, the boys are having a problem. Here I come. They had to learn something in this storm. Why didn't he ru- just rush out and rescue them? Why? Because sometimes God has to wait for you to get done with your own human resources because you don't think you need him. So the seamen thought, hey, the Bedouin street preacher Jesus, he's a good preacher. That's, those are some great stories, right? We, didn't, we, we don't, just don't expect, oh, he's, he's, a distant, he's a distant God from us right now. He, what can he do? He's sitting on the land. I'm not, I've never even seen him swim. We got a problem that somehow Jesus, this, this problem is too beyond you if, if we had any belief at all. I think they had to discover what we have to discover. Sometimes you don't realize Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. Sometimes you don't really realize Jesus is all you need until you finally run out of your own options and he says, I'm all you got. Paul in 2 Corinthians has a verse that says, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this, is, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on God. That's exactly the principle, right? If, you go, if you're relying on yourself, you know what God says? Let me know when you're done. If you're going through your problem and think, Well, I'm just going to toughen up and I'm going to go through it, and God, I don't know why you're helping me, because God would say, You have not because you asked not. You never reached out to me. In fact, you think you can solve it. You know what God says? Knock yourself out. Let me know when you're done. We want Christ to hurry and to calm our storm. He wants to find us in the midst of our storm. And he wants us to find him in the midst of our storm. He didn't simply want to change the disciples' circumstances. He wanted their circumstances to change them. That's what he wanted. Waiting upon God, that's hard. But those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Do you know this? This first verse? Those who wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Isaiah 40, 19. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not go weary and walk and not faint. Boy, that's what I want. You know what the word wait means? The Hebrew word for wait was K-W-V-A-W, kava. It has the affinity word, the word that means to entrench. 
to bind, to twist through the rope. It refers to those who bind or entrench themselves in the Lord. If you entrench yourself in the Lord during your storms of life, he will renew your strength. The word renew, literally you could translate renew in Hebrew, exchange. He'll exchange your weakness for his strength. When I'm weak, he is strong because I can do all things. I can do all, I'm capable for all things through him who literally will infuse me with inner strength. I'm sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. That's the amplified version of that verse. Because the eyes of the Lord are traveling to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for a heart that is right towards him so he can show himself strong on their behalf. He's looking for a heart that's right or perfect. The, the, the King James is a perfect heart that's perfect towards him because he wants to show it. He wants to show himself strong. But he's looking for a heart, a disposition, an attitude that says, God, I can't do this. I need you and I trust that you will come. And I'm going to believe your word, God, even though right now I'm scared. Will you come into my situation? Will you meet my needs? Will you be my Prince of Peace? He's, he's waiting on you. Because that's your side of the faith equation. He, a heart is a disposition. A heart is an attitude that trusts. Even though your things are falling apart, you say, God, I'm going to choose to trust you. Verse 48, about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He only intended to pass by. That bothered me when I read that one. Wait a minute. Finally, you're going to come out. It says he only intended to pass by. You ever underlined that in your Bible? I did. And I said, God, what does this mean? I think I know what it means. I'm going to give you my theory. Ready? Why did he only, why did he only intend to pass by? I think he wanted to bring himself close enough because he thought, Maybe they're getting ready now to reach out to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe they might be ready. I'll give you a verse. Because first of all, I'll tell you, God doesn't push his way into your problem, by the way. He didn't push his way into their problem. He didn't say, guys, I'm here, step aside, right? He waited on them to respond to him, to seek him. That's, what, that's the deal, right? Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him when he is what? Near. You know what he did? I'm coming out to get near to you. I'm going to make this so easy, guys. You are so dull of learning, right? I'm going to... Remember me? Remember we just got done with the loaves and fishes deal? Remember that one? That was a big problem. The little kid came with a sack lunch because he had more faith than you guys did that somehow something great could happen. And you wanted to send everybody home because you said... You know, these people need to kind of go back to their villages and get food because you said feed them, God. I, Jesus, I don't think you understand. There's 5,000 men plus women. And, God, th thanks for sharing that, but that's not... Let's be practical. What they didn't understand is that the Christian life is not designed to be practical. It's supernatural. Do you know that? The Christian life is supernatural. You know what your part is? Natural. You know what his part is? The super. What's more simple than that? That you can live your life naturally and you'll see nothing spectacular. Then you better send people to get lunch. You better keep bailing water. You better keep paddling. You better keep doing what you do in the midst of your storm. Or you could say, maybe, maybe, maybe this Jesus that sits on the shore has a connection as, as God and he can do something super. Because we just saw it happen. The impossible just happened. But they learned nothing from the loaves and fishes. There, nobody had a duller Bible class than Jesus. I'm sorry. Right? They didn't understand. 
They just saw him. They loved his teaching. In fact, they thought he was going to be a political leader, and they're going to be beside him. Who's going to be on the right side? Who's going to be on the left side? They didn't realize Jesus is, a, is literally came as, to earth, and for 33 years, the Bible said he set aside his prerogatives of deity, emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, let his father do miraculous stuff through him because he wanted to demonstrate to you and me that the Christian life is not ordinary, it's extraordinary. That the God of the universe doesn't just watch from heaven when you come to Jesus and say, good, I'll see you when you get to heaven. Have a good time. I'm hoping you do well. Work out it hard. You know what he says? Jesus said this. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, how much can you do? Nothing. So when you fail, you know what God says? What do you expect? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I looked up the word nothing in the Greek. You know what it means? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. But Philippians says, I can do all things. You're capable for all things through someone that can literally infuse you with inner strength. This makes the Christian life exciting. Can you imagine if he just said, hey, guys, you know, I died for you. I cleaned the deck, so that'll get you to heaven. Here's your golden ticket. But boy, do your best. Represent me down there. In your human strength, I don't know about you, but I would totally wreck it. And the disciples thought ministry, they thought ministry was what they're going to do for God. Ministry is not what you do for God. Ministry is what God does through you. From God's point of view. Mark 6.50. Immediately he spoke to them. He said, take courage as I, don't be afraid. You know when he said, it is I? He literally said this. Ah, yeah. He said the holy name of God. Remember when Moses said, who should I say your name is? And he said, I am who I am. That's what he said. And, and if you're a good Jew, you don't utter the holy name of God. And he called, he, God's here. That's what he said. God's here. God's here. He's literally saying the holy name of God. I'm the omnipotent holy God. I, Jesus, all things were created by him, the Bible says, Jesus. I flung the stars in the far corners of the night, and your problem, somehow you think that this problem is over your head? It is. But Jesus comes walking on the water. He said, your problem that's over your head is under my feet. Under my feet. Fear not. Fear not. See, if God's in the equation, you should say, my Jesus will meet all my needs according to his glorious riches. Everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness is found in him. If he's there, um, fear not. Do you know fear not is 366 times in the Bible? It's one time for every day of the year, including leap year. We must have a problem with fear. Because fear is distrust, right? Fear is unbelief, masquerading as, you know... When we fear, we're saying, God, you're not enough. God, you can't meet our needs. God, you can't feed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. This little kid's sack lunch is not enough. God, you're way on the land, and there are waves and a storm, and God, we're seamen. We can't handle it, and you're just a preacher, and you can't handle it. How, how small is your God? They had a small version. It's very small. The book of John, in this very same story, in John six twenty one, it says, when they were willing to take Jesus into the boat... Immediately, immediately, the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Did that mean really that it just like, boop, boop? I think as far as God's concerned, once Jesus is allowed to enter into the craft of your problem in your life, and when, you, when your disposition says, God, I'm going to choose to trust you, when he comes to your life from God's point of view, you've reached the object of the exercise. You will reach the other side when you're willing to take him into the boat. Because he doesn't push his way into your problems. He doesn't push his way into your life. The 
The peace that you receive from Christ's presence doesn't mean you'll no longer have problems, but it means the problems will no longer have you. How's that? They'll no longer have you. A righteous man may have troubles, psalmist said, but the Lord delivers them from them all. Deliverance is not the absence of a storm, it's the presence of Christ. Deliverance is not the absence of the storm, it's the presence of Christ. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that Jesus is the healing balm of Gilead. Isaiah says that he's going to be the prince of peace. He's the one who can bind up broken hearts. That's who this Jesus is, that, that he, they saw him on the shore. The psalmist said he is one that can restore your souls. The Bible says he can hold all things together when you're falling apart. Um, do you know that, Jesus? Do you, do you know him? I didn't ask you if you knew about him. I didn't say, you oh, know, I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus. Guess what? Satan believes in Jesus, and he's not saved, right? Having an intellectual assent to Jesus is not enough. You know the word believe is literally trust and rely on. Are you trusting and relying on this, Jesus? Or not just some sentimental attachment to a biblical icon, a Jesus who's very much alive, that loves you, that watches you, that cares for you. But, but Dave, you don't understand. I, I, I teach Sunday school. I do, I, I do I, man, I, I prayed for our, I have a group I go to. You know what the Bible says? That the last days men will come before God and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do great things, miracles in your name? I drive, I drive demons in your name. And he said, on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. I never relationally knew you, right? The word know is a relational word. When Adam knew his wife is when he had physical union with her and they became husband and wife. They were family. He, Jesus said, you're fond of me. You, you know who I am. You could probably fill in the blank and say, oh, I believe there was a historic Jesus, but do you know him? Are you relationally connected to him? And I'm going to ask that question today because if I'm going to give you any help, you better know that Jesus more than some old guy in a book, a Bedouin street preacher. He's alive and well. He's king of the universe, and he's watching in this place today. And he loves you. And he says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden and overburdened and overstressed. Come to me. Come to me. Come. Just, 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 please, just come. Will you just quit? Come to me. I want to give you rest for your soul. I want to give you rest for your soul. I can, I've dealt with your sin. I've died on the cross. I shed my blood. Put your trust in that, but let me have a relational connection to you. To as many as receive him, to those who believe on his name. There's two action words. To those people, he gives the right to become children of God, receive and believe. I think there's lots of people here, and we live in America. We're believers in Jesus. But when have you received him? When did you receive the one who's the Prince of Peace that can come in every storm of your life and take you to the other side? When? If you haven't, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You should make your calling and election sure. There's a, there is a Jesus that loves you, but he will never push his way into your life. Receiving Jesus is a little bit like when I met my wife. I was fond of her. I thought I loved her, but we weren't family yet. It took a ceremonial thing before God and these witnesses. They said, do you, Dave, do you, uh, forsaking all others, do you accept this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? I said two words that changed my whole life. What were they? I do. If you're not sure, if you said, you know, I go to church here, I, I, I grew up, I, my parents, were, I, they brought me to church, I just always assumed I believed. When did you receive him? If you have never done that, make it sure today. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, I thank you.
that you are the ever-present help in time of trouble, but the biggest trouble we're in, the biggest storm we face is a storm called sin. That The Bible says the, that the, the soul that sins will surely die. God, I, you've remedied that. You've paid the penalty on the cross. Your last word on the cross is, it is finished. Tell it to less I paid in full. You paid the debt, but you offer that to us as a gift. But if we do not receive it, it does not become ours. God, I pray that today in this place that your spirit blows that you meet needs, but more importantly, that you get off the shore and people invite you into the boat of their life. And you'll take them to the other side someday in heaven, but right now you'll take them to the other side of purpose and meaning and significance. And God, I just pray that you will just touch people's lives. And today, if you don't know Christ, just simply say, Jesus, I know, I know that if heaven is a perfect place and only perfect people who get there, I'd be out. But God, you said you died on the cross to forgive all my sin, and you could give me your perfection as a gift that I don't deserve. It's a grace gift, undeserved gift, unmerited gift. And God, man, I need that. I will receive and believe and trust that. And please apply it to my account. And God, come and live and make your home in me. And don't leave me the way you found me. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.